Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Jared and Callie, and good morning. I was uh, loaned a book by one of the elders this week called Meditations on Preaching, and it's Meditations for the Preacher. In the second page, I read this, and this is what I'm hoping, even today in our message. He writes, in preaching, are we seeking to impress the truth or to impress ourselves upon others, to draw men's attention to Jesus Christ or to ourselves? Too often, it is of ourselves that we are thinking. And this is one reason why. Though we may preach brilliant and eloquent sermons, they are attended with so little results in the development of Christian character and the building up of those who listen in faith and holiness. The preacher's aims should be to get such a clear conception of the truth and should be so impressed with its value, its importance, that in his effort to present it, he will not only lose sight of himself, but his hearers also will in thought of the truth. And so my goal for today is to really try to impress the truth so that you will be impressed with the truth giver, Christ. Not to be impressed with our setup, not to be impressed that we're doing a good job via internet. I want the Word of God to speak to you in, in really the quiet of your soul. could be at home. You could be watching on a phone in the car. I have got a lot of texts from people who say that they are even sending it to their families across the nation. And they're, read, they're, they're listening. It's amazing. This is going to have long, long-term effect more than we can imagine. So my goal is that the truth is impressed. To begin, I just want to uh, start with a little illustration to guide us into John chapter 6, where we're going to go today. I grew up in a, in a town, my high school is a whole lot bigger than the high school here at Kent City. And so to play on the football team, a lot of guys went out for the team. And I can remember specifically before two-a-days, the coach looked at all of these men standing before him, all of these players, and he said, look, as a coach, I don't cut. However, these two-a-days are going to be tough and a large majority of you are going to voluntarily cut yourself. And true enough, after two-a-days, I'd say 10 or 15 guys didn't want to come back to play. When I went to college, my rugby coach came out, and a lot of guys came out for rugby. And he stood us in front of himself, and he said, Look, I want you guys to enjoy this, and I'm not a coach who cuts. But we're going to have three weeks of practices, and I guarantee you some of you are going to yourself. They're not going to stay long. I remember when I first started in youth ministry, there was a team of about 10 guys in this area, and they were all youth pastors. And after about four or five years, slowly, one by one, they, they stopped working at the church. They left. They didn't have what I would call is staying power. The title of this message today is Staying Power. How to hang on, how to hold on tight when a lot of people quit. How to have that inward motivation to be strong in the midst of difficulty. And so the passage that we're picking is John chapter 6. I believe John chapter 6 is a, in the whole book of John, it is a strict movement from people who are interested in Christ and then this amazing miracle happens, and after John chapter 6, 
it stops the people who follow him stop dwindling and falling off to where it's really just the 12. It's a fascinating passage. So if you could open up there, John chapter 6, we are actually going to begin reading six, chapter 6, 66 to 71, but we're going to look at the whole chapter. 66 to 71 for me. One of the main reasons I picked this is because when I'm having a difficulty, when doubt comes in and I wonder, is, should I quit? I go to this. I'd call this the true north to me of Scripture. And you'll understand what I mean, but if you can, follow along with me. John 6, 66 to 71. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is the ESV, by the way. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are, you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's where chapter 6 ends. And really the key question he asks Peter is, uh, do you want to go, go away as well? Do you want to leave? Because what we're going to see in this passage, there's a whole lot of people following him, and then he says a few things, and they all leave but the twelve. Why should you stay? Why should you stay, especially when life is tough? Or have you already left? Jesus actually is a questioning His and our allegiance, our loyalty to Him. Are we going to remain loyal when so many others quit? I'll tell you, um, from my perspective, and not just the example we're going to see here in John chapter 6, regardless of what size your assembly or congregation, you could go to a huge church, a, a mega church, you could go to a medium-sized church like ours, or even a small church. This question is for the individual. It's for the individual. Because wherever you go, people seem to leave. And few remain. So, we need to go to the very beginning of chapter 6 and see what is the context. What's going on? Why should we follow Him in the first place? And it begins with a sign, or I call it the sign. And if you uh, go to the beginning of 6, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, this sign that we are going to read about is in all four Gospels. All four Gospels carry this sign. It's a sign that is authenticating this captivating man by the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a captivating man. Peter even says in the book of Acts, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. And so in this story, Jesus is going to perform a sign that shows that God sent him. 
What is the sign? We see it here in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where are, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This is the feeding of the 5,000. Some believe that this was just the men counted. So let's say if we count wives and kids, this might be feeding of the 10,000. But they only accounted to men, and there was 5,000 men that were there to follow him. Whatever the case, John 6.14 says, this was a sign. That means it was purposeful. It was designed to authenticate the person of Christ. Actually, verse 27, chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says. It's very interesting. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, for on Him, the Son of Man, God the Father has set His seal, His seal of approval. This sign is showing that God has set His seal of approval on His Son. Well, who is His Son? He's the only one that is from heaven. Seven times in this passage, look at verse 33, Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. He comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. He says the same thing in 38. Look at verse 38 again. I want to impress upon the Scripture. You need to read this. 38. For I have come down from heaven. I've come down from heaven. Not to do my will, Jesus says. He says the same thing in verse 41. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Then it's same, uh, verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. And then verse 51 uh, says, if I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So seven times, Jesus is saying, I am the mediator. I am the bridge. I am the bridge that links heaven, the life where the Father lives, with earth. This, this world where trouble and sorrow and small people live. Jesus comes in the middle to be the mediator between God and man. And so this sign, this feeding of the 5,000, is intended to be an authenticating sign of Jesus. So we will look at him and realize, yep, he came from a different place. So in order to prove his heavenly agency, Jesus sets up a test. It's a design test. And we already read in verse 6 where he says to Philip, um, Philip, where are we to buy bread? Where, where, where are we to buy bread for all these people? So Philip looks out. sees all these people. And he says in verse 7, um, can see him scratching his head. 200 denarii, that means half a year's wage, half a year's wage, <laughs> would not even be enough for each of them to get a little, little nibble, to get a little, to get a little, probably like a little cracker. Take a bite, give it to the next guy. Half a year's pay won't feed these people. If, if I was Philip, I'd say, Jesus, this is crazy. You're kidding me, aren't you? And then in here in verse 8, Andrew comes and 
I don't know if he's kidding around or he's just trying to throw something in here. Hey, there's a boy here. It was five barley loaves and two fish. But, you know, that's not going to feed all these people. So here's what we have. Here's what we have. We have a situation designed by Jesus to prove that he is from God. Design. You could say it like this. God often allows difficult problems to occur just to show us how much we need them. It's by design. He often does this for us daily. By design, He gives us situations that we cannot handle. There's a false statement in the Christian world that says God won't give you more than you can handle. That's just not true. He gives me more than I can handle every single day. Have you seen my kids? Seriously. He's still setting up situations to prove His agency. That He is the authentic one from God. So from time to time, time to time we think we can rely on our, on our abilities, our brilliance, our intelligence. We think we can fix our problems because we're Americans. Like the Hickman says, we'll get her done. I've heard Aaron say that all the time. And Lauren, get her done. We've learned how to survive, but then God allows problems that are designed to overwhelm us. Are you over? I'm overwhelmed. I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I think I'm on the. I think I've been on the same day for the last seven seven months. I, I'm overwhelmed. So, in this story, to show his incomparable power. Jesus does the impossible. So look at verses 10 through 12. Just read it slowly. Jesus said, Okay, have the people sit down. In other passages, it says, Have them be organized in rows, columns. But in here, it's just simple. Have them sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. I've been there. It's beautiful. The hill goes up off the Sea of Galilee. It's like a, the Sea of Galilee is kind of like in a hole a little bit. And the water is bluer than blue in it just kind of gently slopes up on the side of these hills around the Sea Galley, and it's grassy. And it's long grass that sways in the wind, and all these people start sitting down. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as, as they wanted. Jesus never scrimps. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they had their fill. They didn't just get a cracker bite. They got full. They were satisfied. When Jesus shows up, he satisfies people. That's all I'm saying. That's the point. And in verse 13, verse 13 is given to us to show that this was a real miracle. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who would eat. Now, I've read some goofy stuff that says, you know, I know it sounds like a miracle, but you know, Jesus probably had all this bread hidden behind bushes and he brought it out while they're, come on. This is a miracle. People are crazy how they try to, how they try to take away the miraculous out of Scripture. It's nuts. God is always serving 
the desires of the hungry crowd, including you. You're part of the hungry crowd. He provides food to eat, air to breathe, water to quench our thirst, sunshine to warm our skin, and of course, coffee to bring joy. I got an amen from the choir over there. Scholars call this, they call this his common grace. He sheds his common grace on all of us. Paul describes common grace like this. He allows all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he does not leave himself without witness. He does good to us by giving us rains from heaven and fruit in their season, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. And here, even here, these 5,000, he had compassion on them and fed them to where they're full. Listen to verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, Nah, this, inde- this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Ah, this guy. There's nobody like him. They realize he's different. They realize there's no one like him. And do you know what's interesting? If you ask people about Jesus, most of them will all recognize he is different. He's different. They will even acknowledge there's no one like him. I know people who actually claim him as their own. You know how I can tell people know he's different? They use him as their swear word. Some will even go far enough to say they believe in him, even though they're living like they don't. They still will say, yeah, I I believe in him. People can profess anything they want. They can all be amazed. These people are professing he's the prophet. It's easy to say things. Did you know that? It's easy to say words that I believe something. It's a whole other thing to be loyal to the person I believe is king. Loyalty means I will commit to someone's authority. I will submit to them. But as we see here, and what we're going to see in the rest of the story is most people want something else out of Jesus. We want Him to be loyal to us and our needs. We want Him to submit to my desires. What we're going to see out of this 5,000, the majority of the crowd wants Him to do things other than the reason for which He came. And if He doesn't, they will leave. Let's talk about what the crowd wants. What does the crowd want? What does the crowd want? In this story, what we're going to find, most of the crowd, most of the followers, those who professed he's the prophet, they only came along for a ride. It's exciting to see miracles. It really is. Eat bread that came out of nowhere. It's fun to follow a magic man in sandals who can do wonders. Who doesn't love his show? Who doesn't love a show? Who doesn't love worship, Jared, that have pretty singers with fog lights? Who doesn't like it? Jesus understands this. Look at what he says in 25 and 26. So he goes, uh, it's, it's night, and, he, and um, he's, the, the disciples leave. They go to the other side of the, of the lake or the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus somehow meets them on the other side of the Galilee. He probably walked on water. So they're looking for him in the morning, and they realize he's, on, he's with the disciples. So they run to go see him in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
When did you come here? Jesus completely ignores their question because he knows their motive. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill. (laughs) This is huge what he's saying. He's saying the reason they came is because they wanted more. They wanted more good times. They wanted more bread. Offer people what they want. Give them food. Give them amusement. Give them great conversation. And they'll follow you. They'll, they'll jump quickly on board. But never forget something. If you're a pastor, if you want to be a pastor, never forget something. What people come for needs to keep happening in order to keep them coming I like to say it like this. Buying loyalty is not cheap. It costs you. In this story, while Jesus was trying to open their eyes to heavenly truth, they could only focus on material satisfaction. Look at verses 27 to 34. We need to see the truth of this. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes. See, that's all they had their minds on, the food that perishes. He said, don't worry about that. What you want is the food that lasts for eternal life. And then God put his authenticating on the Son. Uh, Then they said to him, what must we do uh, to be doing the works of God? They're confused. Jesus said, this is the work of God. You believe in the one he sent. So they said, okay, okay. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Okay. (laughs) Didn't he just do a sign? People are fickle. Uh, What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. When they say he, Moses, the prophet, gave them. They gave them bread for the bread. um, And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We talked about that. They said to him, sir, give us this bread, always. Give, give us, they're clueless. Give us this bread, always. Leon Morris, the commentator, says, if you notice, the followers of Jesus in this story are nothing but crass materialists. Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only bread. See, the bread was a sign to authenticate Christ, but they saw the sign as a chance to get more bread. They're materialists. The crowd wanted a permanent supply of bread. That's why they ended in this, this section by saying, give us bread always. In other words, they're saying to Jesus, you know something? When Moses was prophet, he gave us manna every single day for 40 years, and all you do is give us bread for one day. Just keep feeding us. They're hopelessly, as Leon Morris said, earthbound. In my words, they're just never satisfied. Material things will never satisfy you. You know that. And so, when the bread ran out, they ran off. And what they missed, and what most people miss, is that Jesus didn't come just to give us things. He didn't. Jesus didn't come primarily to keep us happy. Jesus didn't come to make us wealthy. Jesus didn't come to... Protect our 401k. Jesus didn't come to provide a 20-year retirement package on a lake where we'll gather shells and watch Jeopardy. 
Jesus didn't come so you'll like Him. Jesus came for one reason. Look at verse 38. Here's why He came. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but to do the will of Him who sent Me. So He came to do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? He says it four specific times. You want to know what the will of the Father is? Look at verse 37. It's very clear. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. The will of the Father is to gather to Himself a people who have staying power. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that He's given me. I'm not going to lose them. They're going to be mine forever. Look at verse 44. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And I will raise him, the one who the Father gave me, I'll raise him up on the last day. I'm not going to lose them. They're going to have staying power. They're mine forever. And then look at verse 65. Exactly the same thing. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So God sent the Son to gather the people that he is wanting to be with him forever. Those who are his that have staying power. They don't quit. They're his forever. So Jesus came to gather them. So my question for you to make it simple is, do you come to Jesus because you want to be with him forever or do you come to Jesus just to get things? And you got to ask yourself this. Because there's this big, big debate. How do you know you're the one that God has called? It's, it's, you can tell by your heart. Why are you following Jesus? Truthfully, I'll be honest with you, as I was thinking through the sermon, there are times in my life, in my flesh, when I get jealous of others. Of what others have. Woe is me. I, I don't have what others have. Look at how everybody else has a great life but me. This is self-pity. And did you know self-pity is pride, but it's inverted pride? I'm not getting what I think I deserve, so I have a pity party for myself. But in this time of pride, I wonder if, if, if my commitment to Jesus has robbed me of nice things. If my decision to serve Jesus professionally is one of the reasons I don't have as much as others, because honestly, ministers don't have a lucrative career. You should see my buddies I graduated from high school. Sometimes I see their houses and I drool. I'll be honest with you. Or I wonder, why does it seem like people always get new cars? And Tom Thomas is always fixing mine. Why do people get to take cruises when my cruise is I get to go on Long Lake on a piece of wood? You know, I mean, it's my inner self that's always wanting, and then Satan whispers to me, and he says to me, Chris, you've tithed for 30 years. What if you would have built up a nest egg with all that money? You know, you could have done with that. And, and then faith calls. And it asks me to trust in Jesus. You know what Jesus says? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. I don't know what version vermin's from. I think that's a weird... I love that word though. Vermin. Rats coming in and eating your stuff. 
and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you follow Jesus to get things now? Because I believe, just like the story, people in the crowd of our day and age would rather have Jesus give them money to use now. Have riches in their possessions so they can buy things, things they see on commercials. There's one commercial, I, I mentioned this a number of times, like it's usually around the Super Bowl. This guy buys his wife a car, it's a red one, and she goes out and she would rather have her husband's new gray one. Like, <laughs> and they're both 60 grand. Like, come on. Most of the crowd would rather serve a God that heals sickness now or follows a king that will politically fight for them now. Because honestly, after a while in this world, it's hard to live by faith in Jesus when He doesn't give me what I want all the time. It's hard to wait, you know that? But that's the flesh speaking. That's the crowd speaking. What does Jesus want? What? exactly is Jesus calling them to do here? So He's sent by God to do the Father's will to gather people. What does He want those people that He wants to gather to do? I think it's simple. Have faith, and this faith will find their satisfaction in Him alone. To find their satisfaction in Him alone. But, but here's the problem with this passage. How he explains it is really troubling. It's downright strange. Look at verses 47 to 59. Please listen close. Verse 47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. I'm telling you the truth. Whoever believes has eternal life. Boy, it can't be more simple than that. But then he goes on. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to give my flesh for the life of the world. It's in reference to the cross, but let's keep going. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Ugh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So Jesus is saying, I'm the mediator between you and the Father. So I live, the Father gives me life, and I will give you life in the Father through me. Then he says in 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not the bread the fathers ate and died. It was in the Old Testament. They all died after they left the, the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread, however, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. All right, so here's what Christ wants. He wants you to eat his body and drink his blood. Wow. For those listening, that was even too much. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples, and not the 12 disciples, but the vast majority of the 5,000, because He considered those 5,000 His followers. They were grumbling about this. And they said, He said to them, do you take offense at this? Offense at eat my body and drink my blood? That's what He's referring to. So what in the world does this even mean? Because we have to, we got to deal with this. Because truthfully, some denominations have abused this statement and said it is referring to communion and the bread that is offered at church during service. There's only one problem with that, is the context of this verse had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with the believing church because it was mostly to Jews who doubted. And it was outside, and then it was at Capernaum in the synagogue. This was not over the communion rites. What is this dealing with? Well, it's pretty obvious. Look at verse 47. Verse 47 is the introductory verse to this long statement. Verse 47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So this is about having life by faith. How do I know this? Because he's even referring back Two, verse 28 and 29. And they said to him, what must we do? Jesus answered in 28, 29, this is the work. You believe in him who he sent. So this phrase, eat my body and drink my blood, has something to do with faith. Believing in him and finding life in him by faith. So how does eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood explain belief? Here's why it's confusing to us. Because we in our current society has, have taught that belief is more, more than anything just mental assent. I agree intellectually. I believe. I agree intellectually. So basically, in America, when you say you believe something, most people mean I agree to a certain set of information. It's a matter of the head. Jesus is saying belief is not just your head, but it's ingesting, participating in the life of another. It's an all-in thing. Morris, the commentator, writes, eating and drinking Christ's flesh and blood appears to be a very graphic way of saying that people must take Christ into their innermost being. It implies a close connection or a constant fellowship with Jesus. In fact, it is the closest possible relationship a person can have. So the eater is in Christ, and Christ is in the eater. It's weird, huh? But look at it like this. I was thinking of an analogy, and I think this is what Jesus means by this. Why do you need to eat food every day? You never ask that question. Why do you need to ingest food every day? Because the food you would eat gives you the nutrients to live. You need to eat every day because you need nutrients, sustenance to live. So faith in Christ is a spiritual issue of abiding life. It is letting Him live in your life every day so you can have constant communion with the one who's going to keep you alive and get you through the toughest of times. The moment a person takes Jesus into their life by faith, you will not go away unsatisfied. He will abide and remain with you forever. That's why he gives us verse 56. 
47 is the beginning of it. Verse 56 is the end of it. Look what he says. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You know what this word abide means? It's used in other places. Abide means where Jesus makes his home with us. He lives in us. He is welcome to come and fellowship with me daily, all day. He gets to influence not just my mind, but my heart, my motives, my soul, my all. Everything. I ingest Him. I live in Him. It's not just mental ascent. It's all in. It's everything. It's, it's funny. You, you, underst- you'll under- you understand this now more than anything. It's because of COVID-19. Now that we have COVID-19, we all, all families, have to stay at home. And I've never abided with my wife and four kids like I've ever had before. I mean, it seems like Jasmine's always in the living room with me and we're always talking about something. And Gio comes out of his room after he studies. Last three nights, honestly, the last three nights, Gio, Jasmine, Joe, Michelle, and I have talked about theology for two hours. I would never have those situations. Actually, last night we talked about end times. You don't want to get into that right now. I know my kids like never before. I've been abiding with them for five weeks. Yes, they've been getting on my nerves. (laughs) Jesus will get on your nerves because he won't like what you're doing. That's the point. When he abides in you, he says, don't do that. Do this. We listen, we learn, we abide. Faith in Christ is a life commitment allowance, allowing Him to enter every day of living. Every day. Some of the disciples chose to stay. So as Jesus talks about His death, about the Father's calling, about eating His flesh and blood, the people didn't get it grumbled. The crowd started thinning because they wanted bread, not theology. People got bored. They get bored with theology. There's no excitement with deep thinking, so they leave. As Jesus watched and turned away, verse 46, after this many of his disciples turned back, actually 66, they turned back, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? He challenged them and had them lay everything on the line, do you want to go? Do you want to go? I know this is hard. Do you want to go? When a lot of friends go to the bar, do you want to go? Do you want to go with them? When a lot of the people you grew up with say, "Ah, you know what, church is just for little kids and grandmas. Do you want to go too? Or do you want to hang on? Chris, don't you want to leave too? That question goes to me. Do I want to hang on a job when I have to watch people dying or counsel people through bad marriages or working on Sundays when people on Sunday in the summer get to go to their cabin or a boat? When pastors who were once my colleagues quit the ministry for more money, Chris, don't you want to leave too? And the answer Peter offers has become the anchor for my soul. Lord, To whom shall we go? Where else can you go? In times like this, tell me, where else can you go? 
listen how Peter answers. He says, Lord, who, who can we go? And when, if you look around, he says, you are the only one. You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. And so I ask you who are listening, I'm serious. Who compares to Jesus? Who compares to Jesus? And please, don't say Donald Trump. Don't say Barack Obama. And don't say the NRA. Don't say that. Who compares to Jesus Christ? Honestly. Bread won't satisfy. Even if our economy gets roaring back again, kicks back in, it still won't be enough. We'll always want more. We just will. The thrill of material things always wears out. We'll always demand, just like the crowd of 5,000 did, because materialism never satisfies. Some of you thought your sports team satisfied, and now they've been gone. Look, you're still going, aren't you? You didn't die. Tigers aren't playing. You're, still, you're okay, aren't you? Because they don't satisfy. But I'm telling you, and what Jesus is saying here, once you take him into your life, by faith, eat his flesh, drink his blood, he says something incredible in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. There's a satisfaction that's deeper than you can ever imagine. You will not go away unsatisfied. You won't. Because he'll abide. He'll remain with you. And a whole new world will open up. It's called eternity. Only he has the words of eternal life. That's really that, all that matters. While I was waiting here and Jared and Callie were singing, I looked on my phone and I got a text. One of the guys I went to Russia with, his name's Buddy, had brain cancer and then just got COVID-19. He just died right before this. He's probably happier than he's ever been in his life. Ever been in his life. When you appropriate the life of Christ, when the eater is in Christ and Christ is in the eater, starts engaging all of you. The whole person is moved. You, an earthly creature, by faith in the mediator, taste seven. One theologian said, you will never know the sweetness of honey until you taste it. You will never know satisfaction until you taste heaven. You just won't. And you won't taste heaven until you have faith in Christ. You just won't. But when you take him, you get a new staying power. Let me, I'll give you an illustration of what I mean. You guys have probably all um, have your pick a show that you splurge on because we need something to do sometimes. And one of the shows I like to watch are the old Survivor shows. The old Survivor shows where they would get about, you know, I'm not sure how many people, 20 some, 19 people, and they would have them survive for 39 days. In the early Survivors, a lot of times they didn't have much food. They just have maybe four or five spoonfuls of rice. And then they would have to make the shelter. And sometimes the shelter wouldn't have any protection and a, and a storm would come. It'd be the rainy season. And they'd be shivering. They wouldn't have anything to eat. And then when they, if they were tired and they, they were cold and they were hungry, they got depressed and some wanted to quit. Some didn't want to do anything. And then they would have a challenge for a reward. And sometimes it would be for steaks or chicken. And the team that won, after they ate one piece of chicken, they said, I'm ready to go again. While the other team is still ready to quit. 
when Jesus comes into your life, before He does, you want to quit. You don't see purpose in the world. All you see is negative. All you want to do is bash people online. But when you ingest Christ by faith, really believe in Him, the Spirit of God wells up inside of you. As it says in Isaiah 14, with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. You, want, you, you will start living differently. You'll have joy. You won't, you won't be despondent. You won't be needing anything. You will have staying power. Do you have it? 